As we dive into our message today, I, I was going to start with this idea and explain this to you, and then we'll revisit a little bit later. It's the idea that performance psychologists have come up with over the last 15, 20, 30 years that for an individual to achieve a level of mastery in a given skill or a given vocation, they need approximately 10,000 hours of applied study and practice and development in order to reach that. So, for example, for, for Russ to play the piano the way that he does, and it was only one today. Some days he plays two at the same times, and that, that's kind of a different uh, level for me. But it takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. There's practice and there's study and maybe some specific instruction that would come that would do that. Or when Ashley has played the violin for us, it takes time to get to that level. Or for our vocalists, it takes time to get to a place where they can confidently lead us in worship because what they're doing has become second nature to them. Now, it's not isolated to musical talents and abilities. Uh, we find this in hobbies. We find this in sports. We find this in a number of different areas. In fact, the trades have picked this up. So if you've been a plumber or an electrician or known one, you know that they have different levels. There are amateurs. That would be me. I would be an amateur electrician. I changed out a light fixture in my kitchen yesterday, and I would say it went very, very well by comparison to a lot of other projects that I've tried before. But I didn't electrocute myself. I didn't drop it on the floor. Uh, I didn't burn the house down. So I say that those are pretty good for an amateur electrician. Now, if you go beyond that, you could become an apprentice, right? An electrical apprentice. That's when you've made a decision. This is what I want to do. And I want to learn, and I want to grow. And, and typically, as an apprentice, they'll put you under the instruction of a journeyman. That's the next level. Interestingly enough, my dad is a journeyman electrician. And so my dad has had electrical apprentices that have worked with him, all of them under the supervision of a master electrician. They actually give him that name, or a master plumber. And that's when you can have your own license, and you can have your own business, and you can then have journeymen and apprentices that are learning the trade from you. And so there's progression. And in the area of, say, sports or some hobbies or maybe music, natural talent and ability can accelerate that process towards relative mastery. And so you might not take quite as long, or you might be able to go further in that area than you would be otherwise. I would say most of us could agree that few have reached a level of mastery in their area than Michael Phelps, right? You, the famous swimmer for the United States, the most decorated Olympian ever. When it comes to swimming, nobody has ever reached a level of mastery that we're aware of greater than Michael Phelps. Guys won 23 gold medals, three silvers and two bronze, which I find kind of interesting. Like out of his 28 medals, over three quarters of them are gold. Like when the guy gets in the pool, he wins. That, that's basically what that means. The, the level of dominance is fascinating. And it's interesting when you look at Michael Phelps, uh, they have noticed that he has a, a much wider than average wingspan. So he, some people have said his arms are freakishly long. Okay, so, so when this dude swims, he's got a physical ability. His physiology helps him. He's got a natural ability. The guy, his dolphin kick is considered the most efficient dolphin swim kick ever, right? But he didn't let that stop him from applying himself away above and beyond in mastering his craft. In fact, as I researched this, I found that he began swimming competitively at five years old. 
and was recognized for his natural talent and ability and began coaching and began getting coaching and, and competing more and more. And by the time he was in high school, he was swimming in the morning before school. He was swimming in, in the evening after school. He was competing on a regular basis. In fact, to the point that they said there was an 1,800-plus day stretch where he swam every single day. He practiced and practiced and practiced and developed his craft over and over and over to the point that you could say that even if, you know, the five-year period of high school, he could get his 10,000 hours in, right? If he was swimming five, six, seven days a week, 2,000 days, you do the math. In fact, I did the math, and uh, they, they estimated uh, conservatively that he probably swam about 30 hours a week during his 25-year swimming career. You work that out, it's over 39,000 hours of swimming. And when you combine that four times the amount to reach mastery with his physiological and his natural talent, it's understandable why he reached a level of mastery and dominance. And so let's just push pause on that as sort of an introduction. We're in a series titled Loving Like Jesus. We started this a couple of weeks ago. Today happens to be the midpoint in that series. And so uh, we're a little over halfway through right now because I preached it once already today. And so this will be the second. We're right in the middle. If you don't like the series, it's almost over. If you love the series, you've got two more weeks left plus today. Last week we looked at loving your enemies. A very, very important teaching of Jesus, and one of the most Christ-like things that we can do is to love our enemies. It flies very countercultural to the world that we live in, to actively seek the good of our enemies. And so we looked at that from a number of different angles, and we considered that really powerful passage at the end of Matthew chapter 5. And we concluded with this bottom line, this idea that when we love our enemies, they stop being our enemies part of the point, that when we choose to love our enemies, when we choose to pray for those who persecute us, when we choose to actively seek their good, they stop being our enemies and they start becoming the objects of our love. And we'll find that we fortunately are not commanded to like them, but it's interesting, as we love them, as they stop being our enemies and start being the object of our love, then over time maybe we do develop an affinity for them, or compassion for their situation, and so on and so forth. Well, today we're going to talk about learning from Jesus, and I think its positioning in the middle of this series is really crucial because it is an important concept. We have to understand that in order to live like Jesus and love like Jesus, we're going to have to learn from Jesus. So today we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30. It's a very familiar passage to many of us. It was one of the first passages that I memorized, first multiverse passages that I memorized. And it builds upon last week's insight that loving our enemies or loving like Jesus is an act of the will. It's not, he's not commanding us to feel certain things. He's, a, he's commanding us to do certain things. We're not commanded to feel certain things towards our enemies as much as we are commanded to do certain things toward them, to treat them as though they were not our enemies, as though they were people that we loved. And just like loving like Jesus is a decision of the will, it's also something that we learn and grow in and develop in over time. It's not something that just a snap of the fingers and there we are, we love like Jesus 90, 95, 99% of the time. That hasn't been most people's experience that I have talked to. There's a process. There's, there's growth in that area. And he invites us to learn from him 
and to grow with him in this area of loving like Jesus. And I believe that is an invitation that is worth considering. It's worth considering if this is the first time that you've ever heard that we should be following Jesus Christ. I don't count it for granted that there are people in this room or watching online that have never really heard about a relationship with Jesus. I thought it was all just a list of do's and don'ts. You're talking about learning from Jesus and letting Him teach us and show us how to do His life, and we'll see that's exactly what He says here. But I think it's also worth reconsidering, especially if you've either heard it and dismissed it, or if you've heard it and maybe even done it for a season and drifted out of it. That it's an invitation that's open to us to reconsider. It's an invitation that's open to us to re-engage and to recommit to, to come back to learning from Jesus and learning how to do life with Jesus. And so we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. It's a passage that I mentioned before is, is fairly familiar to a lot of people who grew up in the church. But if you're hearing this for the first time, this is good news, okay? This is good news that, that God sent His Son to redeem us, and God Himself, Jesus, invites us into a relationship with Him in this way. So I'll read through this passage, and then we'll walk back through it together. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, Warren Wiersbe is a famous Bible commentary writer, uh, pastor, and he divides this three-verse section up into three commands or three exhortations from Jesus to us. And, and as I read it, I also saw four promises from Jesus. So I'm going to kind of orient our study of these verses and our application of these verses to our lives through those three commands and those four promises. So when we look at verse 28, we see the first command when Jesus says, come to me, come to me. And it's an invitation, but it's also a command. It's an exhortation. He's telling them, come to me. Not to the scribes and the Pharisees, not to the elders, not to to the religious elite, which would always say, do this, do this and this and this, and don't do that and that and that. Jesus is more of an invitation. He's inviting the weary and the burdened, by extension, the weary and burdened by religion. Not just new parents, right? (laughs) When I read that verse as a new parent, it took on a new meaning. Am I weary? Yes, I am weary. Trust me. I'm weary of, of sleepless nights. I'm weary of the constant, you know, just trying to keep this little thing alive. But it goes way beyond that. He's speaking to people who had been at the bottom of the religious structure. And he's saying, come to me if you're weary and burdened by the load that has been placed upon you by the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And he's inviting them to come to him and to trust him, to trust his way, to trust that he is a good teacher, the teacher that will teach us how to live in the ways of God. And so to come to him means to trust him rather than trusting in our religious good works, rather than trusting in what we do in order to obtain our salvation. We're going to trust what Jesus has done for us on the cross as the initiation into salvation in His name. It's our faith in Him. We put our faith in Him. 
rather than in our ability to do more and try harder. He's telling us, no, be with me. Learn from me. That's going to come in just a moment. But before we get there, there's the first promise. He says, come to me. Put your faith in me. Follow me, essentially. And I will give you rest. I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. That's what grace is. Grace is unmerited favor. It's when God gives us something that we haven't earned and we don't deserve because He paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. We can be recipients of His grace. And that grace comes into us as we place our faith in Christ and Christ alone, not in our ability to earn it, not in our ability to do more and try harder, but in His ability, in the finished work of the cross. And so Jesus doesn't say, come, follow me, do more, try harder, come work even harder because the bar has been set even higher. He says, come to me and I'll give you rest. Come to me if you're weary and burdened and I'll give you rest. And then we see the second command, the second exhortation in the beginning of verse 29. He says, take my yoke upon you. And we're not talking about egg yolks here. Some of you like the egg yolks. Some of you don't like the egg yolks. Some of you are egg white only. Some of you use an egg substitute. That's not what we're talking about at all. We're talking about farm equipment, right? How many of you know what a yoke is? It's, it's a piece of farm equipment and typically came in pairs or in twos, and it was typically wooden, and you could put one side on one animal and another side on the other animal, and they would be yoked together. And an interesting thing happened that when they were yoked together and they were working in stride, they could accomplish more than twice as much as either of them could on their own because they were pulling together and there was a, a you know, the, the sum was greater than the, the individual parts. And so they would do this and then you could have a yoke of two followed by another yoke of two and you could have whole teams all working together, all pulling together. But the idea in the word picture, when he says, take my yoke upon you, he's saying, get up right next to me. Start working with me. Let's become co-laborers in this thing called life. I have a mission in this world. It's to reconcile people to God. It's to bring people into the kingdom of God. Be yoked up with me and you'll be in the same step and the same pace as me. And we'll go in the same places together and we'll do the same things together. And I will lead you and you can follow me and you can learn from me. That's the next command. So we get the the two commands really right next to each other. Take my yoke upon me, upon you, and learn from me. To learn involves observation. That's usually how it starts. There's observation. You watch somebody do it well. And if you're yoked, you're going to be able to see how he does things really, really well. But then you move beyond observation to study. You don't just passively observe, but you really focus and you really study. And after that, you can get some specific instruction. You can be instructed by Jesus in the ways of life. We can learn from him in that way as well, not just observing or just studying on our own, but to receive direct instruction from the red letters, from from the word of God that instructs us, and we seek to apply that into our lives, and then we become imitators of Christ. And this is what an electrical apprentice will do with a journeyman or a master. They will observe, they will study, they'll read the books, then they'll get some instruction. And so when they're wiring a panel for the first time, say, you do it this way, you do it this way, you don't do it that way, make sure you do this first. And there's instruction, and then there's imitation, and there's observation by the journeyman or the master as the apprentice learns. And so it's the whole watch as I do, then do as I do, and then go do. And this is the model for Jesus' discipleship process. It's that we learn from Him, and we become journeymen, and then we have apprentices 
We have disciples that are learning from us how to follow Him, that are yoked with Jesus and walking through life together. But the one thing learning always involves is time. It always involves time. It always involves attention. And it always involves devotion. It takes time to learn to love like Jesus. It takes time and attention and devotion. And it takes those things takes time with Jesus and attention and devotion to Jesus. Not to anyone else, but to Jesus. That we're going to learn to love like Jesus. We're going to see it from Jesus. Yes, we will observe it in the lives of other people, we hope. But we have to make sure that we're not substituting anyone for Jesus' place. That we're not yoking ourselves to anyone other than Jesus. That we're learning from His Word. That we're spending time in prayer. That we're We're growing in our relationship with Jesus, that He knows me and I know Him, and we're moving through life together, that we're with Him and He is with us. It's absolutely critical. There were seasons early in my walk where I would stop reading the Bible because I got really excited about what one Christian author was writing or another, and I would probably be better classified as a disciple of that individual than a disciple of Jesus. An easy pitfall to get into. And we have to make sure that we are reading the red letters. We have to make sure that we are in prayer and fellowship with Jesus on a regular basis, that we're going through life with Him. These other things are wonderful supplements to that, and they bring us insight, and they bring us understanding. And I quote other authors, but you'll never see me quote another author more than Jesus. I promise you that. And if you've been here the last three and a half years, you know that's the case, that we start with the Word and we end with the Word and we are focused on Scripture as the greatest source of wisdom and understanding for our lives. And so we learn from Jesus and we give massive amounts of time to knowing Jesus, not just knowing about Jesus. There's a big difference. In fact, there's a place in Matthew where he rails against the scribes and the Pharisees say, you know all about God, but you don't know Him. Because if you knew him, you would know I was sent by him. And there is a big, big difference between knowing about Jesus and reciting the facts and figures and knowing Jesus and being in a relationship with Jesus. And he invites us to come to him, to take his yoke upon us, and to learn from him and to give massive amounts of time to that process. And I came across a quote this week and I just loved it. It was astounding in its simplicity and in the truth that it carried. It just said, God never wastes anyone's time. And I just stopped and I said, boy, that is true. He never wastes the time that we invest in a relationship with Him. It is never wasted. He never wastes the time that we spend searching the Scriptures for His wisdom for our lives and seeking to apply that wisdom to our lives. He never wastes our time. He never wastes our attention. He never wastes our devotion. He always rewards us for the investments that we make. Sometimes we can see it right away and sometimes we can't. And it seems like it takes a while for that will to be revealed or for that situation to make sense. But looking back, looking back we can see it. He never wastes our time. And the time that we invest in a relationship with Jesus is the most valuable investment that we can make. Now, the second promise that we see here in verse 29 is when Jesus says, I am gentle and humble in heart. And you might say, well, I kind of knew that one about Jesus. But we have to understand this is the exact opposite 
of the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the elders and the teachers of the law, they were often harsh and prideful and self-centered. And so when Jesus says, I'm humble, I put others first, I am lowly in heart or I am meek, he's saying, I'm not like them. I'm not harsh. I'm not going to try to squeeze you for what I can get from you. I'm going to show you how to do life a different way. And it's really important that we understand not only that this is the opposite of the Pharisees or the teachers of the law who were harsh and prideful, but this is not weak. The older translations, the King James Version might say, for I am meek, right? Jesus would say, come to me and learn from me, for I am meek and humble in heart instead of saying gentle. And sometimes when we think of gentle, we think, you know, caressing a baby's cheek or something like that. It really goes much deeper, and I've explained this before, but it's worth reminding each of us that meekness or gentleness in the biblical sense is, is strength that's brought under control, strength that is harnessed and brought under the control of another. And so the Greek word praos would be used to talk about a stallion that has been harnessed and mastered by its rider. Incredible strength and power, but it's yoked to another. And so we take the gifts and the abilities and the strength and the energy and the insight and the intelligence that we have and we yoke it to Jesus and we bring our strengths under His care and control. And we trust Him with those. And by extension, we become gentle because that's what Jesus is. We become humble in heart because that's what Jesus is. That's what He will teach us to be. As we learn from Him, He will make us those things. And so it's a good time to push pause and look in the mirror. And if you're really brave, ask your spouse or somebody who knows you really well and say, am I humble? Am I gentle in heart? Is that how the vast majority of people would describe me the vast majority of the time as humble and lowly of heart? Because if they're not, We didn't learn to be that way from Jesus. If we're not humble and we're not lowly in heart, we're not gentle, then we didn't learn that from Jesus because Jesus is those things and He will teach us to be those things if we follow Him. And so you might ask, where did I learn that from? Who was I following when I picked up that trait? There's a third promise in verse 29. Verse 29 is pretty well loaded. Two commands, three promises. But the third promise is that you will find rest for your souls. And I thought it was really interesting that in the first verse, he says, come to me and I will give you rest. In the second verse, he says, be yoked to me and learn from me and you will find rest. It's almost as if there's two different levels of rest. There's the rest that is sort of the peace of God that Paul writes about in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, when he says, thanks be to God, we have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ, that we experience the peace of God. I'm sorry, the peace with God. We're made right in His sight through faith in Jesus Christ. But here he says we will find rest as we follow Him, as we grow in Him, as we experience a deeper commitment to Christ, being yoked with Him and learning from Him, as we experience a deeper surrender to Him and a deeper obedience to Him, I believe there is a deeper rest that comes with that as well. And it may be described as the peace of God. There's a powerful place in Philippians chapter 4 when Paul says, Do not be anxious in anything, but in everything, through prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God. And the peace of Christ, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And then what does it say? It says, fix your minds 
on what is pure and excellent, righteous, true, perfect, lovable, admirable, and noble, which are all wonderful ways to describe Jesus. We fix our mind on Him, we're yoked to Him, we're learning from Him, and we will experience a deeper peace in the midst of that, as a result of that. Yes, we are justified by our faith when we come to Him and put our hope and our trust and our faith in Him. And yet as we learn from Him and as we grow from Him, most of us can think of someone that we know that just seems to exude the peace of God. And I would venture a guess they've been walking with Jesus for some time. And that's the goal for us, that we would bear the fruit of the Spirit of peace. You see, this fruit of the Spirit is nine different things, but one of them is peace. And as we walk with Jesus, His peace will soak into us and start to come out of us, and we will be agents of peace in the world around us. There's one final promise, and we see it in verse 30 when He says, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's promising that His yoke, when we come and we join with Him, His yoke is easy. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not difficult sometimes. That word could best be translated as not ill-fitting. If you look up the original language, we see that it's not uncomfortable, it's not ill-fitting. When we are yoked with Jesus and we're walking through life with Jesus, there will be difficult seasons. Most of you have experienced that. And if you haven't, most of you will. But he's saying it's, it's not ill-fitting. It's custom-formed for you. And as you walk through life, it's not a one-size-fits-all. That his yoke and his burden and where he wants to go with us is unique to us. It's unique to the relationship that we have with him. And it does involve all of the things that we've been reading about and talking about. It does involve God's moral will, you could say, to kind of throw us back to this summer when we were talking about the moral will of God and the providential will of God. And there's a personal will. There's a personal will of God for our lives. And as we're yoked to him, we will discover that together. And I believe we will learn from Jesus how to carry the burden that he gives us. Because it's not ill-fitting. And I liken that to, to spiritual burdens that we get. That, that some people are burdened by things that other people are not. There are people that are burdened by child hunger, and they just can't stand that. Other people are burdened by homelessness, and they have special work to do in that area. And as they're yoked to Jesus, they will take on those challenges. Other people are, are burdened by sex trafficking, and they are intentionally focused on releasing people, releasing captives from those areas. Whatever your burden is, you walk it out with Jesus. You get yoked to Jesus, and you walk it out with Jesus. And so as we kind of put a bookend on the Scripture this morning. I want to read it to you in the message translation because I really love the way it's worded there. And I don't necessarily recommend the message as a primary text for people because it's more of a paraphrase. But I really like the message to get a little more insight, to put a little more color sometimes on a passage. And so often as I'm studying a passage, I'll read the message just to see how it's, oh, I hadn't thought of it from that perspective. And often as I dig into the, the words and, and dig into the original language, I find that, yeah, it's absolutely in there. And so when you read the message of this, it, it's Jesus saying to a group of people, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Burned out on do more, try harder? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real 
rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I absolutely love that phrase. Learning the unforced rhythms of grace from Jesus. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn how to live lightly and freely. That Jesus desires a day-by-day, step-by-step, moment-by-moment relationship with us. He invites us to that. Because our bottom line, I believe, truly learning from Jesus results in living like Jesus and loving like Jesus. That as we truly learn from Him, as we come to Him, we accept His invitation, as we yoke ourselves up with Him and start walking through life with Him and learning from Him, that's going to result in us living like Jesus and loving like Jesus. The best definition of discipleship I've ever heard is learning to live my life as Jesus would if He were me. So if Jesus was the pastor of Linwood Wesleyan Church, how would He do it? If He was married to Heather and the father of those four boys, how would He do it? That, that that's what discipleship is for me, is learning how to live my life as Jesus would if He were me. And truly learning from Jesus results in living like Jesus and loving like Jesus. You see, He invites us not only to come to Him, but to learn from Him, to join with Him in the work He's doing, and to do life with Him. And along the way, He promises to give us rest. He promises to be gentle and humble. He promises that we will find deeper rest in Him, and we promises that His yoke is easy and His burden is light. And so, to kind of wrap everything up, and maybe bring things full circle to where we started. Where are you in learning the ways of Jesus? Where are you in learning to love like Jesus? Are you an amateur? There's nothing wrong with being an amateur and starting out and accepting the invitation and coming to Him. Are you maybe an apprentice and you're, you're focused on this? You've decided, you've made a commitment and you're learning from Him and you're yoking yourself up to Him and, and you're intentionally focused on this. Maybe you're a journeyman and you've got a couple of apprentices under you. That's the goal, that we would not only become disciples, that we would join Jesus in making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. So maybe you're a journeyman. Maybe you've reached mastery. And I don't think, because he's humble and lowly in heart, I don't think any of us would ever say, yeah, I'm at mastery. I'm there. Thanks, Pastor Mark. But where are we? And yes, this is simplification, but it's underscoring the point. If we go back to the 10,000 hours, if you just give an hour a week to this, and you do the math, it's going to take you 193 years (laughs) to reach mastery in an oversimplification of the point. Now, if you're just doing the hour-a-week plan, you're probably not going to make it. And if you get all ambitious and double the hour-a-week plan, you're going to need 96 years to reach mastery, right? If we apply the whole 10,000 hours thing. But if we got pretty serious, we said, I'm going to devote an hour a day to careful study, to observation, to give the time and the attention and gain the instruction from Jesus, to learn from Jesus how to love like Jesus. And we said, you know what? I'm going to give an hour a day, seven hours a week. You know what? Now you shave it down to about 27 years, right? And just in case you're wondering, if you did 16 hours a day, every waking hour, you could whittle it all the way down to about two years. 
Am I saying you're not doing enough? Am I saying do more, try harder? Am I saying spend more time with Jesus or He's not going to like you and you're never going to be a master in loving like Jesus? Absolutely not. That's not at all what I'm saying. What I am saying is that the time we invest in our relationship with Jesus is how we learn to live like Jesus and love like Jesus. And if you're not progressing Maybe we could reorient our schedule. Maybe we could stop wasting time in certain activities, like those cell phones. It's really easy to waste time. Like, we should be the generation with the strongest thumbs in the history of the world, right? Because we're just always flicking that screen up and reading a little bit more and watching a little bit more and doing a little bit more on that phone and not investing time necessarily in learning to live like Jesus, but wasting time. I probably have achieved mastery level in wasting time. Maybe you have too. Come second nature. But with intentionality, we can put limits on that. We can put collars on that. We can say, I'm, all, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to waste a day doing that. I'm going to spend more time in that relationship with Jesus, investing in that relationship with Jesus. So I'm not saying do more, try harder, spend more time, or Jesus isn't going to like you. In fact, a, a kind soul closed an email to me this past week with the words, May God richly bless you for all you do. I thought, well, that's really nice. But the second thought was, he already has. God has already richly blessed me for everything I've ever done and everything I ever will do. And I'm not here trying to earn his favor and trying to earn his grace. I'm here responding to his favor and responding to his grace and responding to his blessing and giving my life to that. And that's the goal. That's for us. I'm not holding myself up on a pedestal necessarily, but, but we don't do these things in order to earn more of God's love. We do them as a response to His incredible love. And when we get that, we'll find that truly learning from Jesus results in living like Jesus and loving like Jesus. He invites us to come to Him, to join with Him, to learn from Him. And as we do, we respond in gratitude, and we desire more, and we desire deeper fellowship, and we long to spend more time with him. Not, I have to spend more time with him. Pastor told me I need to spend more time, seven hours a week, 16 hours a day. No, we want to. And we say, where in my schedule can I free up another hour to be with Jesus? I could get up a little earlier. I could turn the TV off. I could put limits on my phone. I could spend more time with Jesus if I, instead of saying, I don't have time. It's hopeless. There's always more time if we value and invest the time strategically. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. We are so thankful for your invitation to come to you, to do life with you, to learn from you. We're thankful for all that you promise to us when we do, that you promise to walk with us, that you promise to give us rest, that you promise to be humble and lowly of heart, to be gentle, to lead us to even deeper rest in you, and to take us where you want us to go. Lord, that is our hope and that is our prayer. We thank you for the opportunity to gather in your name, to sing your praises, to sing about when we all get to heaven, to declare that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. And to hear from your word, Lord. So now we pray 
that you would help us to apply your word to our lives, that you would help us to be more like you tomorrow because we came to church today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.